It's Monday, September 6th, 2021. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is not an episode of the 5049 podcast. How are you guys doing? You all right? Uh, what is going on? I am here today accessing and using the 5049 podcast RSS feed to let you guys know about a new record that I have out. It's called Citadels and Sanctuaries. It's music for solo clarinet with electronics and percussion, and it's out now on 5049 Records. What I'm going to present to you, and I'll talk about it a little bit first, is a conversation between myself and Justin Fry. This record was made at Pioneer Works in Brooklyn last November. Justin is the uh, head of the music department at Pioneer Works and really helped uh, facilitate this record. And I'm going to explain everything before we get into it with Justin. But this podcast, which is not an episode of the 5049 podcast, this is just a standalone thing. This episode is Justin and I talking about the record. All right, so here's the deal. Uh, I've been very active, very busy, very productive in the last year. Uh, the last time I spoke to you through this channel, through you know uh, podcasts, was June 2020, just before um, all the social unrest, you know, sort of st- uh, based around the killing of George Floyd. It was just before all that happened, and it's been. Uh, for all of us, you know, there's there's no need for me to talk about what the the last year, year and a half has been. You know, it's been very challenging for all of us. For me personally, there's a million things I could talk about. What I really want to talk about today um, is this new record that I have out. So back in November of 2020, I spent a month. I did an artist residency, a month long residency at Pioneer Works in Brooklyn. What that entailed was uh, at Pioneer Works, there is a very small recording studio, and for the month, it was mine. I think, you know, with the, you know, not counting Thanksgiving for the entire month of November, I missed three days. Other than that, I went in every single day just like it was my office. And during that time, I made a total of five records. Now, in all honesty, I think of the five, only three will, will be commercially released. Uh, the first of which just came out a couple weeks ago. And for any of you who follow me on any social media platform, you are well aware that this record has come out because for the last few months, I have been pretty incessant in my promotion of this release. And that's why I'm here today talking on the mic. Something occurred to me uh, a couple years ago, um, which is in this day and age, particularly with like underground experimental music, if you put out a recording and you just sort of put it out to see what happens with its natural life cycle, I think right now, or when, it, when this first occurred to me, it felt like the lifespan of a record was about three weeks. That is to say that you put it out, you know, there's a lot of excitement around it. You know, maybe you get a couple of reviews, uh, people hear it and they, you know, they, they like it. So they tweet about it or they, you know, post about it on some other social media. And then 
boom, it evaporates. Maybe best case scenario is at the end of the year, it, it appears on a couple of best, you know, year end lists. Um, but other than that, you know, without the aggressive marketing campaigns that you see in, in, you know, pop music and in, you know, indie rock, these records, you know, they come and they go. And it's, for me, it's sad and it's hard, you know, because I put, a lot of work into making records. This is, you know, of all the aspects of music making, it's always been the place where I, I, I feel the most inspired. I, I feel like I can really offer something unique. So the first record that's come out, um, it's my new solo record. It's called Citadels and Sanctuaries. I recorded it at Pioneer Works. The basic, you know, gist of it, the elevator pitch, if you will, is that it's 10 pieces, uh, each of which is inspired by and dedicated to a particular artist. And when I finished the record, I finished it back in, I don't remember, maybe in February, March, something like that. I, I listened to it. I was incredibly proud of it. I still am. And it's just, I, I thought to myself, I don't want this to just drift away like, like so many records do. You know, I put out a record last year called Sistema, I can't even pronounce my own records. It's called Sistema Mundi Totius, volume one. And dude, I worked so hard on that record. I put so much into that record and I watched it die after about two weeks and it was, you know, honestly kind of heartbreaking. You know, I kind of hoped that it would have more legs than that. So when I looked at this new record, Citadels and Sanctuaries, I, I said, look, I'm going to push this in a way that I've never pushed a record before. I'm going to be completely unselfconscious about how aggressively I push it. And I think you have to do that. Um, so the record came out, it's been out for about two weeks, and I'm trying to maintain some momentum. I want people to hear this. Ultimately, you know, me talking about records having a short lifespan these days, I want people to hear this. It's not just that I want reviews and I want, you know, year end list. That's, I want people to hear this. This is a very special record to me. Uh, not only, you know, anytime you make a record, the record itself is really sort of like a time capsule of the time and place when you were making that music. Um, so number one, that was a really special time and place to me. I'd been, you know, the pandemic had started six months, uh, no, eight months earlier. And this was sort of like the first coming out of that back into creativity um, that I had done. And just to paint like a brief picture, Pioneer Works is in Red Hook, Brooklyn. And I live in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And there is a ferry service that goes from my house to Red Hook. So each day last November started and ended with me getting on a ferry, which to me is one of the greatest things about living in New York City is taking a ferry ride. It's such a beautiful way to experience the city without being overwhelmed by it. For me, being on the water, being on a ferry is just a very naturally meditative environment. So each day began and ended with that. I'd show up uh, in Red Hook around, you know, nine or 10 in the morning, start setting stuff up in the studio, get a vibe going. I would break for lunch and the food options in, in Red Hook are out of control. 
I'd go to, you know, to DeFonte's um, and get what I think is the best sandwich in New York City. Their, their, their house roast beef sandwich is without question, I think, the best sandwich in New York City. Go back to Pioneer Works, work for five hours, take a break, drink a glass of wine, work for another two or three hours, be back on the ferry at around eight o'clock. And it was such, like, I'm always going to remember that month as being like the happiest month of my life. And so this music, you know, this music is very reflective of that. And what's more is that this music on this record, Citadels and Sanctuaries, feels like a very genuine expression of, um, you know, a part of me that I, ha I don't know that I've really put on recorded music. You know, I've hinted at it. Uh, I, some of the pieces, if I'm just right now thinking about the... You know, my recorded output, I, I can point to certain pieces from certain records that, you know, have a commonality. But this just feels like a really genuine expression of love. You know, I, I talk about this uh, today on this conversation with Justin, um, but I really wanted everyone I love to be able to hear and enjoy this record. You know, you make a record, I've made a lot of records that are, you know, you could say inaccessible, um, that are, you know, challenging for you know, general audiences. And that's fine. Music is music. I only want to make music that, that makes me happy and that I care about and feels honest. But I'm not going to sit here and say that it's a little, you know, it can be alienating. I want to, I want to make music that people enjoy uh, having it shared with them. I don't know how else to say it. You know, I want my sister, I want my coworkers to hear this and go, man, this is special. And just um, two weeks ago, I played uh, a CD release concert for this music. I played the music from the record live, and it was, I'm telling you, without question, without exaggeration, the most positive experience I've ever had playing music. It just, it felt like magic in that room. And so, why, so here, I'm on the mic today. I was, you know, looking at what resources I have available to me to get this music into the ears of people. And just, you know, I was like, all of a sudden, I realized, oh, I'm still sitting on this RSS feed for the 5049 podcast. At one point in the podcast, um, I was getting like 10,000 downloads a week. So in an effort to get this music out to as many people as possible, to get people to, to kind of understand where I'm coming from, I, I don't know if what I'm doing today is in bad podcasting form, but here's a podcast. Here is me talking about this record. So don't get it twisted. This, this podcast is pure self-promotion. It's a very authentic conversation. It's two people talking from a place of complete honesty. You know, there's no jive to this, but look, I'm pushing this record. I want you to hear it. If you want to check out this record, if you want to get a hold of this record, go to jeremiahsimmerman.bandcamp.com. Go to 5049records.com. Uh, go to Amazon. Go to Apple Music. Go to Spotify. Any place that you like to not pay for music, you can do it at those places. Um, I've got this RSS feed. I've got the ability to talk directly to you, which is what I'm doing now, and I want to share my enthusiasm for this record that I've just put out, and I want you to hear it. 
So we're just going to get right into this conversation. Uh, just a little background. Justin Fry is the head of the music department at Pioneer Works. I applied for the residency uh, at the end of 2019, was notified uh, within a couple months that, that I'd been accepted. They do it with a panel. Um, Justin was there every single day. This was sort of an unusual period of time to have been at Pioneer Works, and, and Justin and I will talk about it today. Uh, it was unusual in that I was the only person in residence at the time. Pioneer Works is this massive, sprawling complex with just tons, every kind of studio, art studio you can imagine. And before the pandemic and now as it's getting back to normal, you've got artists of all different disciplines there at the same time doing their residencies. And there was a very social aspect to it. Artists mix, they do, they do uh, crit nights, they do open studios, they do all that stuff. And the only reason I was able to come back is because the music studio uh, is the one studio at Pioneer Works that's separate from the main facility. So when I was there in November, I was the only person in the building, except for, you know, some of the facilities guys. And Justin, Justin was there every day uh, or most days, and he helped, you know, helped facilitate anything I needed, uh, including a really large scale recording that I did with Blood Mist. Um, and Justin's just a great guy. He's been incredibly supportive and is just, you know, has got a heart of gold. So that's why I wanted Justin to, to interview me about this record. He was there during the creation of it. And, um, you know, this was this record was made at Pioneer Works, and I want to represent Pioneer Works in this discussion. I joke that when I, when I did my artist residency at Pioneer Works, I was like the hunchback of Pioneer Works. It was just me late into the night making these, these spooky sounds. So, oh, let me say one more thing about Pioneer Works. Right now, they, they just last week opened their sub, uh, uh, the period of time with which they accept and review submissions for artist residencies. So if any of you listening out there who would be interested in such a thing, whether you're a musician or a visual artist or whatever you're into, check it out. Go to pioneerworks.org and, you know, apply. Can't hurt. Okay, so we're going to get into the conversation with Justin. The new record is out. It's called Citadels and Sanctuaries, music for solo clarinet with electronics, with synthesizers, with percussion. And, uh, Thanks for listening. Uh, I, I hope that you enjoy this conversation, and I hope you check out the record. All right. Love you. Bye. But you want me to, like, more interview you about the music itself or, like, the I, concept of the record and stuff? I think so. I mean, I don't know if, I, if, I, if I'm putting you in a spot by doing that. Um, <laughs> well, I have some questions. Yeah. Well, it's just, I mean, like, getting the, the record that I made that's coming out 100% is a because of the time that I spent here and the music is the music th is the way it is because of these six months of isolation leading up to it. So it seemed like a good idea if I'm going to do something like this to talk to you about it. Cause you know, you were oversaw the whole thing and you know, it was at your, uh, invitation that I was here. Um, and you helped, you know, you were like the tech guy throughout it. Well, technically you applied for a residency That's and true. Were, were awarded a residency by a panel of jurors. Right. Right. Um, but I appreciate you giving me the credit for your invitation. All right. Yeah. I mean, 
thinking about the music itself on Citadel and Sanctuaries, um, I think what's like the most striking about it is that it's very melody focused. Mm. And I guess I'm curious from a compositional standpoint and like kind of how you ended up taking that route. I mean, it's very linear. Like it's, you can't really tell what's composed versus what's improvised. Mm -hmm. Um, There's repeating lines and it's like, did he just sort of revisit that or did he, is this, you know, written out and performed. And then also with like sort of the concept of the, um, the tributes to different composers, you know, kind of like also in a way like makes that a little bit even more ambiguous because almost everyone you are doing a tribute to is sort of like a composer composer, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. there's some improvisers, but there's like, they're like composers. So I guess I'm curious first and foremost about like how you compose the album and how you produced it. I mean, uh, you know, anytime a musician or a band makes a record, I, th- I think this anyway, is that that record is like a time capsule of whatever they were doing at the time, whatever they're feeling at the time. And by the time the record comes out, you're listening to something that is already behind them. You know what I mean? And at that particular time, you know, this was November 2020. So this was like eight months into, you know, the COVID lockdown. And I wasn't interested at all in doing like uh, a reflective, you know, COVID post-quarantine record. But, you know, the truth of the matter is like everyone, I was by myself. And I used that time to just work on being, you know, just working on like the fundamentals of my instrument. You know, I think... I can speak for myself in saying that for a lot of years as a musician in New York, particularly like in the world of like improvised music um, and then sort of like noise and like sound-based music, I think I landed at a place where doing melody-based music, it was something that I became really scared to do. Like I kind of began to rely on, you know, these things that I um had sort of like zeroed in on like extended technique and noise and electronic stuff like that. Um, but during that time I was literally, it was me and, and the instrument and, uh, you know, taking an honest look at, um, what I needed to get better at, but also what haven't I expressed yet. And, you know, it's like when you're practicing your instrument and I think the older you get and the further into like a trajectory you get, the more you sort of lose sight of this is that practice. You're When you're practicing, you're supposed to be working on the things that you're not that strong at. You're not supposed to sound sick while you're practicing. You're supposed to sound <laughs> shitty until you iron things out, you know? And, you know, certainly, you know, as I said to you, you know, before you hit record, when I was here during that residency in November, as you mentioned, I was maybe the first resident welcome back. There's a couple more before you, but I feel like you were part of that first cohort that um, that we, like, had to contact and say, like, are you comfortable being right, here? Right. Like, is it okay to do a residency or do you want to reschedule? Right, right. And but but you know, I I bring that up because, you know, Pioneer Works is this like sprawling complex. It's huge. You walk into the main space and, you know, it's like a cathedral almost. And I feel like correct me if I'm wrong, but the way pre-pandemic and hopefully now post-pandemic the residencies go is that all these different artists are doing shit in their little workspaces and that there's sort of like this vibrance in the air and people come out and, you know, talk to each other and stuff. And yeah, even now it's, you know, July, 2021, it's sort of inching its way back, but there's more like, 
uh, more energy for sure. I feel like the residents interact more. We do crit nights right. in person instead of on Zoom and, you know. Yeah, yeah. So when I was here, it was, you know, the first cold month of the year it was November. And I, I was the only cat. I felt, like I said, like the hunchback of Pioneer Works. And again, you know, having just gone through like the initial like severe portion of the lockdown where like a lot of stuff that I was looking forward to and been working on gotten canceled. Um, you know, I hadn't seen friends in like seven months giving, being given the opportunity to go somewhere and just like make music for a month. I was like, well, I don't know who knows, maybe we'll, there'll be another lockdown. So I was like, I got to like savor this. So that when, you know, when I talk about like the timestamp or the time capsule, like I took the ferry here and back every single day and I was alone in that studio. And it was like, I would say without sounding like, you know, dramatic, it was like pretty hermetic experience. It was like basically what I've always wanted. As like far as the tribute stuff goes, uh, I mean, it, the first track on the record, which is dedicated to Bill Smith, Bill Smith died just before the pandemic. And I'd you know, been thinking a lot about him and came up with this piece for him. Um, and then I did this, uh, I, I wanted to do a piece for a while um, for Evan Parker, who's a really important person to me. So the first two pieces I recorded up there were those. And then it felt like, oh, these are perfect bookends. Let me fill the rest of the record in with this in mind. So for some of the pieces, you know, I would literally hit record and just throw stuff until something stuck. Um, and then if I got somewhere with it, you know, I would say, okay, let's, this, this piece makes me think of, you know, Nate Woolley. Let me just like carve it down a little bit. So you didn't, you, you didn't really go in, um, before recording and say, I'm recording a piece for Morton Feldman right now. You said you kind of had, would work on pieces and, you know, as you produce them, you sort of dedicated them to people that you felt they represented. Yeah. I mean, a bit of both. I mean, like, or like your influence largely taken from working with them or listening to them was right. present in the work. Well, I mean, like, you know, there's a piece on there dedicated to, you know, a dear colleague, um, I would say brother of mine, Mario Diaz de Leon. And at the time he, I, just before starting the residency here, I had like gone through some pretty, uh, like traumatic stuff. And at Mario's, basic insistence like i started doing breath work with like a i mean i don't know if you know what breath work is but it's like it's a very uh structured sort of like integrative therapy that you know uses your breath to help you whose method do you use wim hof or well the the person i i, I actually had a session with her this morning um is alice wells with this organization called one breath do you do breath work um i've one time Wim Hof, the ice man did it, came here and I recorded an interview between him and Dustin who served pioneer works and Dustin Yellen. And he's talked a lot about, um, he has like a whole breath work thing online and this whole cold therapy thing. And like yeah. his whole vibe is like essentially exposing yourself to extreme conditions and breathing through it and yeah. it like activates your body and mind. And yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. It's wild stuff, yeah. man. Like it cracked something open in me, uh, and it continues to. I'm still like kind of like That's cool. You go somewhere to do it with somebody, like yeah. in their presence. Cool. I've only ever like looked at a YouTube video. And it's sat on it's my wild, couch. man. I would recommend it to anyone. Um, uh, oh, but you know, so Mario, you know, put me onto that, and then while I was here, he actually came through a couple times, and I would like play stuff that I was working on, and he was like, "It's great, but." just let the clarinet speak. Just like, you don't need all that other stuff. Like, I want to hear the, I want to hear you. I want to hear the instrument. Um, so like the piece that's dedicated to him is specifically dealing 
with, you know, working on my breath and also working on, you know, the things that I started talking about a few minutes ago, which is like, let me put the, the, the playing and the music, um, out in a way that I haven't done before, which is kind of scary, you know, you know, I'm, I'm very aware of what a lot of my faults are as a musician. And so to like expose them, you know, is like, it's kind of terrifying. Well, I think that's an interesting point. I mean, I wouldn't call them your faults, but I, I mean, I understand that from like a self-critical perspective, but I think that like, what's interesting about this record compared to your other work and you even like quote the wire in your press release right. for this, but like the quote from the wire talks about like how damaged your records usually sound. <laughs> and I think like the interesting thing about this is it sounds like really beautiful and it's very clarinet forward and it's very like melody forward. Whereas a lot of your previous work, like you said, deals with extended technique or like sort of like reinventing the instrument or right. like, you know, trying new things with the instrument, pushing, you know, pushing the instrument forward in different ways and using electronics to sort of like amplify that or enhance that. Yeah. Whereas this feels very like, um, this feels more like a duo with electronics in a lot of ways. I mean, like there's the, like the sort of key characteristics of a lot of this music are like some kind of really kind of like transcendent delay. And there's just like sort of this like air to it. And then there's this like sort of like, sub frequency synth mm. stuff happening that I think is like, feels very like conversational or like it feels very distinct as opposed to being like, like one singular happening, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I think like you, there's definitely, st I mean, I'm assuming that you didn't just like one man band out live. Like there's definitely layers. Oh, there's lots of layers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, there's lots I mean, of layers, you know, as musicians, I feel like you're going to be very familiar with the thing I'm about to present, which is like, you know, let's say you're working on something, you know, and it's sick, you know what I mean? It's like, it's fucking sick. And like, you play it for like a friend of yours, a, you know, a fellow musician and they go, dude, this is fucking sick. Like that's one thing and that's rad and that's a thing to chase. But there's also something about being able to play something that you've worked on, um, for anyone, you know, like your sister or, you know, um, your grandma, your grandma or like a, you know, a coworker at your job. That's like not necessarily, and like have it speak to them and doesn't, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't mean have like, the same, speak the same musical language as you. Yeah. It's, it's actually really nice. And it, you know, Alice, who I was just talking about this breathwork therapist that I work with, you know, early on in, in our sessions, we talked a lot about comfort and she was like, do you do things to comfort yourself? Do you do things to bring comfort in? And <laughs> I looked around my apartment and it was like, holy shit, everything in here is, I had a pot of lentils on the stove going. I had like a, my Pendleton blanket, like wrapped. I was like, yeah, this is all about self-nurturing and comfort. And she was like, have you ever done that with, with your music? <laughs> I was like, well, that's an idea, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I feel like comfort and music aren't necessarily always synonymous. I mean, you don't really... I can't say I've ever made music to feel comfortable, but maybe I have. I don't but know. you've listened to it to feel comfortable, no? Yeah, oftentimes. I mean, I mean, last just listened to the Cranberries this morning. Did you really? <laughs> yeah. Is that like a serious band for you? Um, in the past two days, it has been. Yeah, I've just been revisiting. It's like kind of like a post The Cure kind of like. Yeah. I don't know. Lots of chorus on everything, but like. Yeah, it's comforting. Yeah. It's there's it's definitely a warm blanket, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I especially like 
I remember a couple times in the first few months of the lockdown, uh, I, you know, people were like, well, what have you been listening to? And I was like, dude, all I've been listening to is Lester Young and uh, Ornette Coleman. And for, I mean, it was all, like, I would, the idea of listening to anything would be daunting to me. For whatever reason, like, I was getting a lot of comfort in that music. And even now, like, I, I, mean, I don't know if my listening habits have permanently shifted, but I don't, I haven't really listened to anything in the last year plus uh, for, like, any, uh, how can I say this without sounding like an asshole? Like, exploratively. Uh, yeah, I've just yeah. been listening to stuff. Like, if it doesn't make, if it's not offering me some kind of comfort, then like, I'm, not, I'm just gonna not listen to music. Yeah, I think there's something to that. And like, this time specifically, I've definitely been listening to more nostalgic music in the past year than I ever have in my entire life. Yeah. Um, just a thinking that like when you're in high school you're not listening to nostalgic music i mean it's exploratory yeah i've definitely been doing a sort of deep dive and re-listening to albums that i liked when i was 15 16 and and they're mostly pretty good right yeah some of them are terrible Uh um, and i can't do it but like i don't know everything from lee morgan cornbread to like fucking dillinger escape plan yeah. calculating infinity totally which like all of a sudden you're just like wait what the fuck were they doing holy shit but what's it i mean in because I've, I've been doing quite a bit of that in the last few years like listening to the music that when i was like 14 i thought was the best music in the world haven't listened to in 15 20 years and what's always cool about that to me is like you can i can hear moments in the music where i'm like oh that's where i got that from oh that thing that i do that lick that that sound world you know like oh that's taken directly from like vulgar display of power or you know (laughs) yeah i mean i think there's a lot to that because you're you've spent even if they're guilty pleasures you spend a lot of time with these records at some point in your life and they're in there yeah and they're informing the music you're making so it's important to confront them at some point (laughs) yeah totally and just like i mean just like you know when you sort of if you get to experience this like when you sort of recognize traits that you have that are like very clearly from your parents stuff that you may have like resented in your parents you're like god damn like i'm actually quite a lot like my dad like that it's good to look at it and again you know like i i you know guilty pleasures when i was you know 14 15 years old like i would have if les claypool asked me to kill someone i would have done it you know what I mean? And it's like so deeply embarrassing as like a 40 year old man to be like, oh yeah, I was a huge Primus fan, but I don't know. I it's like baked I in there. I could have, I could have learned that through your music. <laughs> all the slap bass. All the slap bass. All the slap tongue on the clarinet. Uh, but you know, back to that same thing. It's like, you know, Morton Feldman, like I would, you know, so in making this record, I would think about, well, what is it about these particular people that is important to me or compelling to me? And you take someone like Morton Feldman who, you know, you listen to a piece like like Rothko Chapel or um, you know Palace de Marie, and it's just like all this beautiful color that's like not in a hurry. Yeah, it's not in your face. It's like something happens, and then it happens again, and then it happens again a little differently, and it's just like it puts me at ease. And you know, there's something. It's like, oh well, that's I, I enjoy that as a listener. Like, let me see if I can kind of create that as a as a player. Yeah, I always loved about Morton Feldman's music that it was like, it it felt sort of transcendental in the way that like, 
it felt like it should have been made. It could have been made in the country somewhere, but like it's also inherently like New York City. Like, oh yeah, it's sort of like this like frozen, slightly changing music that like feels like walking down the same street every day and noticing something different. You know what I mean? Totally, totally. Like there's something just super New York about it, New York City about it, even though it's like largely pretty docile in ways. You know, or it's not. Maybe that's not the. No, it's like it's delicate. Every line is like super delicate. Like you'd think that New York City music would be like chaotic and insane, Mm -hmm. but uh, it's just you know it's beautiful and it's you know there's that aspect of living in the city for sure. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's I'm curious about like like your like tribute to Martin Feldman. I feel like sort of embodies that vibe a little bit more than the other songs on the Mm -hmm. album. And do you feel like? between that and like your like Mario or Toby jams or your um, Alvin Lucier mm-hmm. piece, like is there, I mean, I'm assuming you like started recording all of these, like sort of with the same mindset and then the aesthetic felt akin to those people or felt like a good tribute. But like, did you at any certain point, did you like take that idea and run with it to inform the composition? Totally. I mean, especially, you know, with, with the piece that's, that's dedicated to Feldman is, um, there's like a couple lines that I play that like I'd begun playing, um, just as an improviser, whether it was solo or with, with other people, you know, I think I'm actually super into this thing that may be something that sort of like defies the code of improvisation, but like, I love that musicians have their licks you know, like I can think of right now like four Lester Young licks that you hear like him do all the time in his solos or like same with Coltrane, like, you know, you got like your licks. And so I was like, there was like a couple of licks that I was doing and I was, you know, I was like, well, where'd, where'd that come from? And so, like, okay, I know where I got that, that, that from. It's Feldman, you know, and I've always wanted to be you know, from years ago in an improvised situation that like very directly there's something i remember a few years ago my friend was saying yeah we're in the middle of feldmania like everyone was talking about feldman uh but once yeah once i kind of got this piece up and going you know out there in the the studio here it was like okay this is clearly like a feldman thing so let me think about like what it is about feldman that um that that gets me and then you know i'd bring those things in to the piece you know stop think about it play it again and in, you know, in a lot of ways, and this is something I, I struggle with and I'll probably always struggle with is in the moment playing, whether it's solo or playing with other people, this constant, excuse me, um, this constant thing where I'm like, am I playing too much? Am I playing too little? Like, am I rushing the piece? You know, am I dragging it down? Am I, you know, it, and it's just, it's really difficult for me to just like sit with it and um, try to not get in the way of it. You know, and for me, Feldman is like, if, if you want to learn about, as a listener and as a player, if you want to learn about how to, to sort of deal with that and get yourself to a place where, where time becomes, within the piece, becomes really elastic, you know? Like Feldman, as, as a listener, like that's where I can sort of find some clues on how to bring that into myself. Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, there's something not like, I feel like, did is there did you do like bells on that piece or like not bells but like or was that on the first piece it's on a couple of them i had a whole array of like tibetan bowls and bells up in the studio yeah there was some i mean i don't even know if it's on your feldman piece but one of his compositions that was always like really deep for me was his samuel beckett piece. yeah 
he did the for Samuel Beckett. Like he did that kind of like tribute Bible. Yeah. I always wondered like how his, you know, his Samuel Beckett piece is very percussion heavy. It's a lot of bell sounds. Yeah. I just kind of always wondered like how he drew that connection. Right. Like where, if he just went into it with that idea or I think it's interesting, like tribute music is kind of an interesting thing or music that's dedicated to someone specifically. Yeah. Well, I started a few years ago, I did a solo tour and the only idea I had before the first show, I was like, all right, this is what I want to focus on on this tour was playing short pieces. You know, typically for years I would play a solo set that would be one long piece, like 35 minutes, and then a short piece, like a five minute piece. It was always the way I did it. <laughs> and it's like, it's, you know, it's cool, but like how long, you know, you know, I mean, you want to try new things. And so I think I did like, like seven shows on this tour. This isn't, I mean, that's even outside the box. I feel like most improv shows are just the one 25 right. to 75 minute long right. set, depending on who you are and how much you hate the audience. Right. <laughs> but uh, that's cool. I mean, that's like a good, good restraints to put on yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I started like that. And so I was like, all right, well, what's, you know, what's the challenge in that? What, why is that? Why would that be a challenge to me? Why do I have to like focus on this? And I, the first, you know, thing I came up with was that, well, by playing the long piece, I only have to build momentum really once and just keep it going. If I stop, if I play and wrap a piece up in, you know, three to seven minutes, I have to start all over again and build momentum. And so I intentionally said, all right, I'm going to play these short pieces and I'll talk to, I'll talk in between pieces, like, which is again, totally terrifying. It's like, why would you talk? You know, you're a stoic improviser or whatever. Um, and just like the first night in, you know, I played a, a piece and it was fine. It was as good as you would expect the first piece on the first night of an improvised tour to go, which is like not very good. Uh, but then I was like, all right, uh, well, I'm going to play another piece. And the first person I thought of, I was like, this piece, um, I'm going to dedicate to uh, John Cassavetes, the filmmaker who was watching a lot of his movies a couple of years ago. And it was like instantly, it, it was striking to me instantly just thinking about those films and that approach. It totally helped guide the improvisation. And I would do that every single night. It would, you know, I would think about it on the drive. I'm like, all right, I should do a piece tonight for... Um, for Ken Vandermark, or I should do a piece tonight for, you know, John Cazal, the actor, or I should do a piece tonight, you know. Um, Interesting. I mean, I think like neurologically speaking, it seems like, you know, when you start improvising, usually you like, at least for me, there's like a meditative quality to it where there's like kind of nothingness. Right. But it seems like if you were to apply that kind of logic, it would naturally fire your brain into like some weird direction and yeah. it must have an impact on what you're playing. I think so. Even, I mean, like, cause I also, I mean, like I'm a feel guy. Like I don't ever, I don't do anything like the Like technical aspects of anything that I do, whether it's, you know, making my bed, cooking something, um, making a piece of music. Like I, it's not, it's not where, uh, I excel. Like I, I do everything by feel for, you know, for good or ill, you know, there's definitely, good and positive aspects of that um, salty dinners I could, yeah i could make some very salty food <laughs> if, I, if i feel is off but yeah just like going with that like just saying that to myself all right this piece is for you know yuki Mishima or something that's all you have to do i don't have to think about it any more than that but for the six minutes the 10 minutes that i'm playing i'm just you know thinking about yuki Mishima. 
or the book, you know, a particular book by, by Mishima that, you know, and, and it's not something I'm going to do. I'll probably not do it again. Like after, after this record, but it's, I don't know. It feels, it also feels really good to, to pay tribute to, to things. Yeah. I mean, you also work very, I mean, I feel like you work closely with a lot of people that you like, but when you first sent me the record and I was looking at, it, I was like, are these people, cause it's use the term like for right. blah, blah, blah. I was like, did he compose a piece for these people? But then, you know, you look at the other names and you're like, okay, they're dead. Right. Um, and then it, you listen to it and you're like, okay, it's all clarinet. Never mind. Oh, right. But, right. As it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I hear like, you. Yeah. Um, but like, I feel like the isolation aspect sort of like, have you ever watched the show alone? No. <laughs> what is that? Alone is this show where they just drop these survivalists in the middle of like the Arctic and like these like, you know, in like a national park, essentially like just total, no civilization anywhere around them. They all have like their own like area of X square miles. Mm -hmm. There's no way they could ever run into each other. Um, pretty insane conditions. And they try to make it to like a hundred days, but like inevitably by, by day, like 20, 10, 20, even like, each person just starts getting sort of like emotional or talks about like the relation, how much their relationships mean to them. I don't know. I've thought a lot about that over the course of the pandemic, how much like this kind of thing has come up in a weird way. Mm -hmm. Like it's sort of this collective like way to reconnect with people mm -hmm. while you're on your own, you know, it's kind of interesting. I don't know. Yeah. I, I've, I'm, I'm, we're now starting to see, the records come out that people made, you know, throughout 2020 and not surprising at all. A lot of them feel really lonely and feel kind of reflective. Yeah. I haven't heard a lot of exuberant, <laughs> joyous music happening. Collaborative albums. <laughs> yeah. There's a few out there. I mean, yeah, but I think you're right. Like a lot of people have been pretty interested. I mean, myself included, definitely. I mean, it's also, it was really hard to make music hard. Like I felt like I was on personally such like a full steam ahead vibe for so many years. And it's like when this shit happened, it just felt like a natural, like complete, I don't know, like a natural vacation or something in a weird yeah. way. And it was like hard to like, I mean, my circumstances were different. I had a child and I feel like maybe that is more informative of it, but it's like you just kind of getting to a point where like you just need like a creative break. And I think about like one of my friends who makes music and like quit making music and to draw and mm -hmm. to become a visual artist a while ago. It was just like, I was like kind of baffled by it. Cause I was like, damn dude, you just like quit music. He's like, yeah, I just needed a like mental shift. And then like, of course he went back to music years later sure. and like made really fucking cool music. But it's like, I don't know. I think about that often. Well, there was definitely, I remember at the start of the pandemic and, you know, what the first, you know, when they first announced the city or the world going into lockdown, like I honestly, I was like, oh, this will be like two weeks or three weeks till they, you know, yeah, iron it out. Totally. And I had like a very sort of um, easy spirited uh, feeling towards it all. And I was like, I remember talking to people on the phone and be like, man, if cats don't come out swinging their ass off from this, you know, this is an artist residency, man. And that feeling went away very quickly. And I didn't touch my horn for the first six weeks of the lockdown. And, you know, it became very clear to me, one, that 
it, it was unreasonable. You know, a lot of people have talked about this, but it was like totally unreasonable to expect anyone to thrive artistically just because they have the time. You know, everyone was terrified. Every, you know, yeah, time is not an easy thing to deal with necessarily. No, but also <laughs> like I was, I, I personally felt very existentially challenged. You know, like on the one hand, you know, several of my musician friends who derive a hundred percent of of their income from music, you know, they were like, what am I going to do? They were screwed. All their stuff was canceled, you know? And for me, you know, I was like, what was going on with me? Yes, I had stuff canceled, uh, but what came up was like, well, do I even deserve to call myself a musician? Like, what's, what will it matter to anyone if I come back and play again? Like, you know, that, and that's, that's a not, that's a dark place to be. Um, I go that place with or without, you know, a worldwide pandemic. And so to have it, you know, be presented as, well, to have presented it to myself like that was, it was pretty grueling. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you, I mean, that's an interesting thing for anyone to think about. I don't I feel like I don't really ever overthink my place in music. I just sort of take it for granted, which maybe right. is like a negative thing or maybe healthier. Yeah. I mean, I feel like if, there, it's just there's too much shit out there for me to even think about anything beyond creative expression. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I've made a lot of music that sucks, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm okay with that. Um, but I, you know, I've it was creatively fulfilling at the time, so like I, I've well, don't have any issue with that. Yeah. You know? But I feel like I don't know. You shouldn't do that. You should have more confidence in yourself as a musician. Well, yeah. I mean, and that's, you know. Or do those just exist co-equally? Like, it's just. What, like, complete devastating self-doubt? Devastating coupled with, self-doubt with confidence? I, yeah, I guess. I don't know. I mean, it. I guess on, on some level, like, if I do anything, if I play a concert, I'm like, I hope people understand that, like, this was a real challenge for me. Like, I'm totally, like, I have friends, you know, I look at someone like Peter Evans, you know, who's, like, a dear friend of mine and arguably one of the best musicians any of us know. He just, I mean, he just plays, you know, it's just like, it's, he doesn't, this is, I mean, I'm sure he would tell you, you know, maybe something different, but his relationship to his instrument and his confidence on it, you know, comes through loud and clear and it's like mesmerizing to listen to and watch. And even so, sometimes it sounds like someone's farting. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. I mean, a lot of, yeah, being alone for the, during the pandemic and then being in residence here alone up in the studio, even though I did have some people come in and, and make some records with me, you know, in jazz, you know, they talk about like being in the shed. It was like being in the shed, but sort of like with a very different. Like actually being in the shed? Well, actually being, <laughs> yes, physically being in the shed, but also just like with the, you know, when you think about as a, as a player, you know, being in the shed, you're like, all right, well, I'm working on my chops, you know, I'm working on um, my rhythm, I'm working on, you know, my intonation or whatever. And this just felt like a different set of, different set of stakes because it felt quite honestly, and, you know, it's something that I think I'm going to have to think about and deal with and talk to people about for a while. It, it felt like I had like the stakes where I'm, I have to prove to myself whether or not I deserve to be a musician. And it's, it, you know, it's scary. And it's like, I don't all, you know, I, I, as we just said, like I battle a lot of like, 
self-image and, and, and confidence issues. And so to really like present that challenge, because I, I, mean, I put that challenge to myself like clearly. It wasn't like kind of floating around the back of my head. It's like, do I deserve, you know, what should I, should I be, um, you know, chasing down gigs and, and opportunities that, you know, could have been reserved for a quote unquote real musician? Like, I, you know, that shit goes through my head. Um, well, you should know that 280 people applied for a residency <laughs> and 12 people got it. And yeah. you're one of them. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that stuff, you know, just like, I mean, you know, going back to this record you know, and thinking about the music that's important to me and the people that make that music, like, I don't, I, I don't ever want to take any of it for granted, you know, and, you know, especially. And the residency panel was also like, we blind listened to the music. Right. And the panel was Amirtha and um, Yuka Honda. Yuka. Wow. Yeah. And everybody listened to your music blindly and was like, this is sick. What is this? And then we talked about it in the context of many other musicians. Yeah. That's, that's. But, you know, I mean, I get your headspace when you're going into the making of this album for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 um, Yeah, I, I even like hearing you say that just now was like difficult for me to like. <laughs> yeah. But like you know, so if I think about you know the what, um, like what the music, the power of the experience of the music of Tony Scott, for instance, like that's you know when I think about the impact that that music's had on me, you know, the, in particular this record he made called. Uh, music for yoga meditation. I remember looking at the record when I was like 20 being like, what is this crazy shit? This is, you know, a guy playing clarinet with a sitar. Like this looks hilarious. I have to get this Hmm. boom, blows my mind. And it's like, if I could go back in time with what I know now, if that record had like a $2,000 price tag on it, I would have said, you still need to buy it because this shit is going to change your life. This music is going to open up ways of thinking um, cause you know, that's, that, you know, that's something I've talked about a good bit, like in, in these podcasts for me, the big challenge has always been like, how do you bridge these different things? And it's, it takes years to figure out for me anyway, for like little inroads, like, well, how do I, you know, how do I, you know, if, if the music of Albert Eiler is just as important as the music of, you know, fucking, you know, Slayer or, or, or Feldman or Coltrane or cypress Hill or anything like well how do i how do you know I, i've got I, I have to reconcile these things like it, it no, doesn't I know you man it's hard to think about you know your identity in the context of all these amazing incredible geniuses that have ever existed but, yeah you know. yeah but do you think they didn't think of that i mean they didn't know that they were, maybe i mean maybe coltrane knew that he was what? fucking insane and amazing but i don't know you think Jimi hendrix knew I think, I don't, I mean, who, I, who could say, but I think, you know, to me, like Coltrane is the go-to figure when I'm trying to make a point about someone striving for excellence. And like, I mean, there's, there will never, I, I am, I'm so confident in saying that no one is, I, I, no one has ever been both athletic and spiritual at the same time. And just reached the heights that that dude scaled. I mean, that dude ascended all the heights. Like, yeah. that's it. That's the perfect, you know, I think about, 
you know, perfect music, perfect being, like that's Coltrane. End of story. Yeah. You know, none of us are going to touch that. Yeah, it's pretty and in, pretty intense. It's a hard thing to think about for sure. I feel like a lot of like a lot of people when I talk to um like non-musicians, you know, and they're like, what, what, what music do you listen to? What do you like? I feel like the only appropriate answer is like Coltrane and Bach. That's it. <laughs> and like, I don't think they get what I mean when I say that, but it's like, when it comes down to it, that's kind of it. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, I mean, I feel like Coltrane transcends the term Western music pretty massively. Completely. You know, Bach is definitely like all over modern pop and is just kind of everything, you know? Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. It's like, you don't, I don't really listen to much Bach anymore, but definitely had to, was forced to play a lot of it and uh-huh. understand its value in the world of music. But every time, like, I have, I have that box set. It's like 150 CDs of Bach. All Glenn Gould. Uh, no, no, it's mostly like, but you put it, well, whatever you put on, as soon as you put it on, whether it's like a cantata or whatever, you're just like, oh yeah, yeah, this is, this is someone talking to the, you know, to the big man. Yeah. There's a reason that everyone, that it's like, you have to go through that as a music, like as a, as a, like a studying musician, like you have to go through that, you know? And like it'll always like be a, there. It's That's like incredible. A gauntlet that you have to face on I remember he didn't write anything for upright bass as a solo instrument. So it's like when I was in school, you know, we had to play the cello, the cello suites. Yeah. The yeah. cello suites. And, uh, it's just like, it's not made for that instrument. Right. You're like kind of forced into it, but then you realize the value of it is that like, you can't really derive as much about, you know, melody and harmony and tone. Yeah. Like from other music. I mean, even like Vivaldi or something similarly, uh, like from a similar historical context, just doesn't really do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely something about Bach, especially if you listen to the piano music at like full blast, like hardcore overblown on your car speakers. Yeah, especially just, the Glenn Gould stuff. Yeah. It was just like... It's pretty, uh, pretty heavy shit, man. Yeah. So what about like leading in when you started this conversation off and you're talking about Lester Young and Ornette, mm-hmm. like which, which albums were like, were you just kind of spanning the collection or were there specific albums that really felt influential or like part of the progression into this album? Um, the Ornette stuff. Yeah. Like the, at the start of the pandemic i was listening a lot to um something else this is our music uh like the st- all the stuff that came shortly after the shape of jazz to come cool and then i was listening a lot to like early prime time like uh dancing in your head and stuff like that and <laughs> i love the sound of like the sound of those recordings is amazing it's insane yeah it's almost like cartoon music yeah. but these guys are just playing with like absolute fire yeah. It's such like a weird juxtaposition. And that, I mean, that's always been the thing with Ornette for me is like this dude so masterfully figured out a way. And this is, pro, you know, very sub- subjective. And this is, you know, as a listener, like my interpretation of it and the feeling that I get from it. But like 
in the music of Ornette Coleman, there's like such a sense of sadness and such a sense of like absolute joy that like at all times are just sitting right beside each other. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, did you? <laughs> I think that's super true. And I can see that on this album that you recorded for sure. Have you spent much time listening to Lester Young? I've, I've like had time with Lester Young for sure. It's amazing. It's like, in terms of like jazz, yeah. like straight jazz, especially like it's some of the heaviest shit for sure. It's the heaviest. Yeah. I mean, his tone, his, his everything. And you know, I've, I've, you know, I've talked about this before, but like music in particular, more than for me, more than film, more than literature, like I find it deeply rewarding to kind of like find out who the, the artist is um, and have that be part of the experience for me. Um, what is it about Lester's work that like grabbed you? Well, I mean, I, I just, from the first time I ever heard his music, like it, it just, it ripped my heart out of my chest, you know, especially like, I mean, in, I mean, his version of Stardust is the, that's Stardust. I don't even want to hear another version of it because <laughs> it's just going to make me mad, you know? Um, or like, I'm confessing that I love you. Um, there'll never be another you. Like, it's just, I mean, every time I hear it, like, I feel like I'm getting my heart ripped out of my chest. And, you know, so starting there and then kind of like looking at it as like a case study because, you know, this thing I said earlier, like, you can hear him play the same lick, like, on different solos. And it's like, well, well, that's very human of him. Like, he's not a god. Like, he's actually just a dude up there working, and, like, maybe he wasn't feeling it that night, and he's just doing his shit, you know? Or maybe, like, he's, like, working on that lick, and he's going to fucking pull out all the magic of that lick night after night. Or, you know, I heard this... Um, I forget what band it was. Uh, uh, David Krakauer played this for me. There's this early Lester solo. It's a big band. He's playing with Charlie Parker, and he fucking, without question, outblows Parker. Damn. I mean, just like 16th and 32nd notes the entire time, just but, you know, going up and down the fucking sax, just burning. And it's like, okay, first of all, this must have been like 1948 or something, because the power with which he's playing was clearly diminished you know, up until the time he died because of the alcohol and, and the drugs <clears throat> and everything. So being able to listen to music from like that perspective, you know, whoever it is, you know, Chet Baker, Johnny Cash, John Coltrane, John Coltrane, like hearing, you know, he luck, you know, he burned, you know, he died before he burned out. So we didn't really get to see what that might have. Or he's just greater than heroin. I don't know. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he healed heroin. Uh, but, you know, there's these interviews with Lester um, in like a Paris hotel room towards the end of his life. Uh, and you listen, it's on YouTube. It's gut-wrenching to listen to because it's a sound of a just completely defeated man and not just by like you know defeated by career or drugs like fully cognizant of what he's experienced as a black man in the united states at that period of time what it's been like you know on the road for all these years you know it's it's a guy who is so deep down in a hole of darkness at the end of his life. And it's just gut wrenching to listen to. And it's like, well, I can't not hear that interview when I listen to his music. And, um, there's just, there's so much in that music that is like life wisdom to me, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's the powerful thing about a lot of the sort of like what do you call them? Like band leaders, but he wasn't even necessarily a band leader. I mean, just soloists yeah. at that time is like all of their creative expression is like within these moments that they were given to improvise. Yeah. And it's like, I feel like, especially before they were, even though eventually composing music of their own, but like you're talking about like in a big band with Charlie Parker. Yeah. We yeah. don't have to get super jazzy, but it's just like, you know, these people just their entire creative expression is in this, like, you know, 48 bars. It's amazing. Like, yeah. It's amazing. And it makes me feel like, well, I've got a lot of work to do because that dude in those 48 bars just expressed more beauty with more precision than like I've ever done in, you know, my whole life, which, you know, that's me being hard on myself, but it's also true. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's why it's hard to think about, but I mean, they spent all of their time practicing. I mean, you're spending your time composing music, producing music, you know, they spent all of their time practicing to shine in that like second. Yeah. Know? And it's like, and to like blow someone's mind in person, like not thinking about it existing at all after that moment, you know? Yeah. It's pretty fucking heavy. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Try to make music like that. That's fucking impossible now. It's impossible for me. But I mean, somebody's out there that's talented that can do it for sure. Right, right, right. That's the goal. What else? What do we do? We cover everything. Do we do it? Let's see where we're at. Is it an hour? Almost. Almost. Um, let me think. The record. Um, you want to talk about new sounds or? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> what, did, what did they play? I'm just curious what they played. They played uh, new, new sounds. Played. Um, the Tony Scott piece, the piece for Tony Scott. Oh, cool. Um, and then made the program about Tony Scott, mm. um, which, I mean, Tony Scott, like, he's one of those guys to me, like, beyond, you know, like, the impact that his music's had on me, you know, and, and I'm, I'm aware that it's very, and it's particularly impactful to me because it's the instrument that I play. But, like, I really hope that, that someone like that doesn't just get like forgotten by time. And, you know, I mean the, the, the music that that guy made and the, the contributions and the, the records that are like so utterly unique and beautiful, like people gotta be, people have to, you know, be putting this stuff on the same pedestal as, you know, all the other quote unquote important records. It's insane to me that it's not on the same. I mean, I've never listened to him, so I'm going to do that now. I guess. Right. <laughs> <laughs> keeping it going. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's how do you, I mean, you can't, I guess you, you know, like you can't guarantee anything, you know, gets the rightful recognition that it, that it deserves. But, and, and I, I guess maybe that's part of like the struggle of, of man and of life is to feel relevant and to hope to maintain some kind of relevance, but for the, yeah, for the life of me, like there's like just certain way too diluted to think that I mean, (laughs) there's a lot of shitty music that's relevant and there's a lot of amazing music that's irrelevant, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's relevant to a handful of people, but in terms of like societal, cultural legacy, I mean, you know, 
But do you ever think about that? Like how much better just everything would be if like Evan Parker, what he's done as a musician on the saxophone for the last 50 plus years. If people had just like an ounce of that in their own lives and how they approach whatever it is that they do. Like just how much sicker the world would be. It would just be sick. It would be like that rigor, that dedication, that singular vision. I mean, I think that, you know, it's a lot, it's sort of, to me, it's like genes getting passed down yeah. from one generation to the next. And it's like, you know, like you, your great grandparents might not be alive, but like you're alive and you have them in you. Right. And you're who you are because of either the good shit or bad shit they did to your parents and the right. bad shit they did to you. And similarly with music, I mean, the people that he influenced might, you know, might be like Kamasi Washington or something. You know what right. I mean? Like might be people that are like breaking that music into a larger context. Right. And without him, does that exist? You know what I mean? Um, I don't know. Yeah. It's more of a circle of life approach. Sure. Sure. I, I just, yeah, it's just, that's just, it's something that like I, I thought about a lot in this last year. And this is kind of what I was saying about Coltrane. It's certainly true. Um, with Evan Parker is like, and it's, you know, it, it, it seems like, I don't want to like, you know, I don't want to go to like some dangerous territory with this, but it, like these guys were striving for excellence. You know what I mean? Looking up, like looking up, you know what I mean? Like man casting his eyes on the sun and look like, you know, striving for excellence that seems to have like gone out of fashion and out of favor in a lot of places, you know? And it's not like, you know, maybe I'll have to cut this because it's, it might sound like preachy or whatever, but like machines are doing too much work for us or like the Kardashians. I mean, you talk about striving for excellence and vertical tension. It, well, because most people are just people that don't have interests beyond pop culture and they represent, a human side to certain people, you know? I mean, I think there's, mm -hmm. I understand it. I think that like, you know, they represent what people like either strive to be or like see in themselves, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think something that, you know, all the pieces on this record that I made, like that are all dedicated to these different, uh, musicians and composers, I mean, I would say, like, with absolute confidence, every single person to whom I dedicated something, I would say, in their lifetime while they were alive, or, you know, the people that are still alive, strive for excellence. And that, to me, is, like, I probably ultimately... Um, and you, what you mean by that is they push themselves yeah. out of their comfort zone yeah. to be better at what they've dedicated their lives to, ultimately. Totally. Yeah. And in doing so, you're dedicating your life and you're dedicating your work to something bigger than yourself. Yeah, I think you see that a lot nowadays with cooking. Uh-huh. Like, you know, with Top Chef or something. Right. Just that, that culture being more prevalent in, like, the culinary world. And, like, chefs being more, like, 
solo artists right Right. um like the kind of shit you experience in the culinary world is like you know unlike shit i ever experienced pre this past 10 years you know i mean yeah not that i was that tuned into it i mean i worked at pizza places when i was Uh in my like (laughs) it was like i don't know i feel like you see it in certain aspects but it's like music is interesting because it's like so much so much music has been made in such a short amount of time. Yeah. And ultimately like the music that gets, I mean, I feel like the music that gets really popular, like the either beats that people are producing or like electronic music or pop music. I mean, in the same way that like Lester Young's 48 bars in a big band, are the culmination of like many hours of work leading into that. I mean, in a lot of ways, the way that producers work tends to be, you know, the result of thousands, tens of thousands of hours doing right. that before they're in the studio, just like putting something together super quickly. Totally. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, well, I mean when you watch anyone who's good at something, do their thing, it's yeah. for me anyway, it's mind blowing. You know, I tell this, told the story about, um, but you mean it's sort of not being as rewarded as maybe it once was. Well, or just... Or acknowledge, maybe. uh, I mean, what's wrong with just being, like, really good at, like, one or two things? Like, that used to be deep, you know? And, like, if you were, like... um, The problem is that music is subjective and that good is different to different people. Sure. Yeah. But I I guess, like, I'm compelled and inspired by that rigor, you know? And I would rather listen to one a person who's been doing the same thing for 50 years and just honing in on like the perfection in that thing than to someone who's been doing 50 things for 10 years. And it's like, well, you know, that's cool. You can do all those things. Perhaps lacking a little bit of like genuine depth, not like intellectual curiosity and depth, but like there is depth to, you know, if you go to Midwood, Brooklyn and get a pizza at Defara, it's like, that is what that dude does dom demarco you know he'll be gone soon like you are tasting the pizza of a dude that's been doing the same thing day in and day out for like on the same pizza stone yeah for it's incredible it's, it's like mind-blowing no, no way to replicate it absolutely mind-blowing yeah. and you know i'll take that over you know any danny meyer re- well you know in his portfolio of you know 20 restaurants it's like i don't give a fuck about that <laughs> you know okay. i saw there i used to um and I'll shout him out right now. My brother, Ignacio Matos, who I worked for for years, is an incredible chef. Incredible chef. I watched him one night. I, and this, this is something that, like, you know, when I talk about this, like, strive for excellence and this rigor focusing on your thing, I watched him one night in the kitchen at the restaurant I worked at. Um, his mentor of many years, Francis Malman, had come in. And he learned everything he know, knows about cooking meat over a fire from Francis. He did that shit with him for 10 plus years. And I watched Nacho make this pork chop for him. And he cooked the entire thing with his hands. The whole time the thing was on the grill with his, you know, he would take like, he has this like lacquer of like fish sauce with his hands, like rubbing the sauce on the meat and sort of like shifting it around on the grill to make sure. And it was just like, okay, that's it. That's, that's what I want. You know? (laughs) Yeah. That's, uh, that's beautiful. Yeah. So that's what, uh, do you feel like, uh, Citadel and Sanctuaries is that for you? Like, did you touch the meat? 
Uh, those cookouts? I was trying to. Uh, <laughs> I was trying to touch some meat. And um, I mean, if, if anything at all, it's just, I feel like it's a record that encapsulates what that last year was of yeah. kind of confronting, like looking at what, like confronting myself as a musician and like, genuinely questioning like if there is there any depth there you know and hopefully trying to you know prove to myself that there was and you know i feel good at the moment nice yeah cool thank you for justin thank you so much for man for for having me come out and talk and everything it means a lot to me anytime dude thank you it's a great album excited for the world to hear it thank you brother <laughs>